Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. I am sorry that it has taken me this long to get a um, show on the air. I'm planning on doing like a whole crapload of them to thank you guys for the support that you gave me last month. I was seriously just dealing with a bout of writer's block, and I still sort of am. I just go over my show list, and I'm like, man, what do I have to talk about that hasn't already been talked about? So, um, once again, if you guys have any guests that you want me to bring on or any show ideas for roundtables or blogs, just let me know. Um, it's just Once you've been at this for a while, it's kind of hard to come up with new material. So, I had remembered talking to Doug a little bit about one of his most recent trips, and we had discussed doing a show to discuss that. Um, and uh, so that's one of the things that kind of prompted this show. So uh, if this is your first time listening to V Radio, please visit my website, v- or v-radio.org. There you can click archives and listen to lots more shows like this one. Um, interviews with documentary filmmakers, activists, congressmen, senators, politicians, you know, uh, Occupy Detroit, Occupy Flint. I've, I've had all kinds of different people on um, you can also listen to different roundtable discussions there about different you know things going on in the world, past and present and future. Um, in addition, you can click on my must-see TV list, which is basically a list of free documentaries that you can watch on the Internet. Uh, they're all hosted somewhere else generally, but I kind of gather links to really good documentaries, and you can find those by going to my website and clicking must-see TV. If you like what you hear on V Radio, please consider a donation. Uh, basically, I, this is kind of a listener-supported effort, and um, the time that I put into V Radio, uh, you know, you guys rewarding me for it, you know, is one of the things actually that keeps me afloat right now because uh, unemployment is really high in Michigan. Um, and all that being said, uh, we get to the good part. Doug, welcome back to V Radio. Oh, hello, Neola. Thank you for having me back. Now, it's been a while since you've been on, and I know I have a lot of new listeners, so just uh, do me a favor and kind of reintroduce yourself to the audience. Oh, I should have written up a paragraph. Okay, so <laughs> uh, my name is Douglas Millett. I'm a former aerospace systems engineer with the Space Shuttle Program. Don't confuse that with NASA directly. The Space Shuttle Program, actually, most of its workforce were not NASA employees. But anyway, I was a subcontractor to the Boeing Corporation, uh, playing with the shuttle payload bay. Uh, I got my engineering degree in 2007, a little bit later in the game. Uh, it was basically while in college pursuing my uh, engineering degree that I ran across the Venus Project and the Zeitgeist Movement as a whole. Uh, the first Zeitgeist film was interesting, but didn't exactly inspire me to do anything other than go, wow, that's interesting and controversial, and kind of chuckle and move along with my life. Uh, it was the second film, Addendum, that actually proposed a solution set that when I looked at the face of it, I basically went, well, yeah, that's how a Mars base would have to operate. And so it didn't take a whole lot for me to understand what the resource-based economy was because my affinity with space exploration and the knowledge that I have in that background uh, seamlessly trans translates over to what the RBE is. But instead of doing it in space stations and on other planets, we just adopt the same philosophies and use them here. Isn't that convenient? <laughs> so um, – that's what kind of got me into the movement, and then I made a film called Awakening. Uh, it was a 30-minute 
uh, breakdown of a lot of the zeitgeist movement, uh, what it was saying and what the Venus Project was saying, all put together into one little package. Um, I jokingly said when I made it that I would be lucky. I told my dad I'd be lucky if like 40 people watched the film. And for about a month straight, I had 400 plus views a day. Uh, on it, and it's just kind of uh, exploded off of that and gone viral and went everywhere all over the web in many languages, and currently it's being reworked by the translation team to get it into 24 different languages, I think, subtitled. So um, I'm happy that people were able to, to use that as a tool in the toolbox. Uh, we need a lot of them. There's a lot of different ways to, to go about trying to make the world a better place, and so that was my small contribution. And I also fly around and deliver lectures, um, not necessarily under any one particular flag. I'm more of an advocate of the resource-based economic system than I am of any particular group or organization, only because, as we know, sometimes the politics involved with that can become mind-bogglingly stupid. <laughs> and so I would just much rather talk about the principles and the tenets and give stories and analogies that people can understand. And so that's what I do. It's basically about global sustainability, and that's really in a nutshell kind of what we're advocating for is global sustainability. And so I fly around, and, and people help me get to places and deliver these lectures at universities and whatnot. And uh, also, see, this list is too long. And also, <laughs> I'm in the process, or I'm the CEO of a company I just started called Cybernated Farm Systems. We're currently in the research and development phase in uh, trying to get some of the grow chambers to work with a different lighting schematic so that we can grow high volumes of food in automated buildings that are small scale but self-sufficient meaning that they do not get plugged into any grid. They are power self, uh, self-regulating self for power, for water, for everything. And you can put these in the middle of nowhere and feed people. And that is kind of important when you're looking at areas of the world that are so impoverished that they do not have an infrastructure. And so uh, you, those people are starving and dying. And so hopefully my systems will be able to go in there and instantly start to crank out food without having to turn these people into farmers. I mean, they barely have the energy to wake up in the morning, and some of them don't. And so we don't need to be trying to turn them into farmers, 17th century style farmers digging in the dirt, especially since a lot of their soil is dead anyway. But that's a whole additional topic. But <clears throat> so... Hopefully, the cybernated farm systems is a way to show people how technology can be used in an ultra-positive way. Um, and then that is basically a caveat to what the RBE stands for in many different ways. And that's uh, kind of that erosion process that I talk about. We're not really going to change the planet only by talking about it. We're going to have to actually do some things to show people how this stuff works. And so sustainable, RBE-minded companies should come into place with kind of one foot in the old system and one foot in the new system and kind of transition from one space to the other over time, showing people how it can be done. And that's kind of what I do. Well, that was very descriptive. <laughs> um, well, uh, basically... Uh, we, like, one of the things that like has been coming up actually now uh oh wait there's a question already from the audience question to Douglas if those systems keep cranking out food what biomatter has to be put in to replenish the systems somebody needs to do some research on aquaponics for themselves and learn how that works 
I get that question a lot, and I'm now to the point where I'm telling people, you need to research what aquaponics is. And once you learn how aquaponics works, that question answers itself. And I'm not going to go into a three-hour description on how aquaponics works for a couple of reasons. One, I'm not an aquaponics expert, nor do I claim to be one, and I don't have to be for what I'm doing. I'm a systems engineer. I'm bringing together the relevant subject matter experts, putting them in a room, and cranking out a product. And so that's how that works. And so all somebody has to do is research aquaponics. They will learn how all the biomasses are handled. Uh, People sometimes forget that part of the biomass equation is the CO2 and the gases and everything that go into the creation of the plants. Uh, And since it can be an open air system and we can regulate and control that, that's part of it as well. So that's how they can figure that out. So I guess uh, to kind of frame that as a Jacques Fresco answer would be, well, I don't know, (laughs) but I will find people who do, and they will be the ones assigned to that task. Exactly. I mean, never once do I claim to be a know-it-all, but what I do know and what I have researched, I've done enough research to know that aquaponics exists and it works. Robotics exists and it works. Every every fundamental aspect of what I'm doing with my company exists. All I'm doing is putting it together. I'm rearranging the Legos in a neat way to save lives. So I don't really have to explain all of those aspects in detail to everyone all the time because I actually get that question a lot. I get a lot of questions, repeated questions over and over, and I just sometimes wish people would do a little research on their own. First, they would learn so much more. In fact, hopefully they do research it on their own because then they could maybe do that in their own hometown, do something for help themselves or help their friends and neighbors around them and, and move forward. But I'm way too busy to answer 10,000 of the same questions. I hate to sound that way, but I've gotten to that point where I'm way too busy to deal with a lot of that. All right. Well, <laughs> I see you've had to answer that a lot. Um, yeah, I do. And, and other ones like it. No, that's I fine. I don't mind the questions. I get it. I know where they're coming from. Sometimes they're trying to be devil advocates. They're trying to, like, gotcha questions and stuff. But, you know, the the information can be found. It's not that difficult. Um, I guess uh, one of the reasons why, like, you know, because, like, as far as current you know, goings on in the the Doug Millette phenomenon is that you recently have just done two lectures, one of which was in Europe. Where, where in Europe again? I did a Scandinavian lecture tour, which basically spanned uh, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. Okay. Um, why don't you go ahead and talk about that? Sure. Um, I started off in Stockholm, uh, then went to Linköping in Sweden, and then I went over to Oslo, Bergen, and Trondheim in Norway, and then zipped down to Copenhagen. Uh, I gave, uh, what was it, 11 lectures in 19 days. Uh, Some cities had two lectures. Uh, The rest of them were singles. But uh, it was a lecture on global sustainability. Uh, a lot of them were recorded, uh, at least some of the key ones where we had the, some of the better cameras. Um, I brought a camera, but it wasn't the best camera in the world because I had limited battery life. And uh, so that was disappointing. But still, I got uh, some of the lectures got recorded, and they've been edited and put together, and they're online. Um, my channel has them. Uh, the TZM official channel, I think, also has them. Um, my channel is TZM Social Evolution, 
And people can look that up on YouTube. Sorry, that's a YouTube channel. And uh, find the lectures there. Um, that covers like the Oslo lectures on there. That's by far one of the better ones. Uh, I put one up from Linkshipin, uh, and I'm working on one in Bergen. I don't even know if I'm going to have uh, the capability to put that one up because the audio didn't come out that great. So I'm only trying to put up the quality stuff. All the lectures were essentially the same. The only thing that would change up a little bit would be the question and answer session towards the end. I really like showing people the question and answer sessions so that if they do have a question, maybe somebody else addressed it. Um, although you find, as you do this enough times, people who think they're independently minded and are unique all ask the same questions. And so um, you end up getting a lot of the same things over and over again, but sometimes they're worded in different ways, which is good because it gives me a way to answer the question in a different way. Uh, and it's so much easier to do when you're face-to-face to uh, to address those kinds of things. But a lot of them are pretty, pretty standard uh, questions that you get, like the overpopulation question, which I've addressed many times over. Uh, I even addressed the overpopulation question at the uh, Z-Day lecture in Vancouver uh, just a couple of weeks ago, or it was last month. So... Um, that that was the trip. It was a great trip. I had a lot of support from the TZM membership. They're the ones that basically helped make it happen in the first place. Um, if it wasn't for all these people supporting what I do, I wouldn't be out and about doing these things and building these connections. I ended up meeting a lot of amazing people on the way, got some business cards, set up some connections and stuff like that that I could potentially use in the future to grow CFS, to do additional lectures in the future, uh, things like that. So it's, there's always something positive that comes out of these things. Okay, excellent. Um, any uh, highlights or any moments specifically from any of these lectures? I mean, kind of take it one country at a time, like uh, any good questions that you got asked that you don't normally answer you know, have, have, or you've never had to answer before, things like that? Oh, let me think. Uh, so many of them were the same. Um I mean, they can't question the technological capabilities because that's part of the lecture itself. So, And it's kind of funny when I do these lectures. Uh, it's, it, in this particular case, a lot of these universities were engineering or technical universities. And so the students that were here kind of already have one foot in the door as far as they kind of know what we're capable of to a point. But then when I lay it all out the way I lay it out, they still have this look on their face like, wow, I never thought about it that way, like holistically. They're like some of them are kind of focused, uh, and I'm okay with focusing your discipline so that you're really good at a particular aspect. But it's also something that Jacques alludes to, and I agree with, that not enough people think generally. They're not generalists. Um, you can't know a lot about everything because that's kind of asking a little too much from your average person or the human brain in general. But you should kind of know how a lot of the pieces of the puzzle work together. But in our society and the way we view the world, we get very myopic. And so when I show up and I kind of like throw this gauntlet down and say, bam, take a look. Here's all the different systems working together, and this is how they could provide this technical abundance paradigm that we're talking about. And all it does is give us what we need to live in a way that we can respect and learn from not become ignorant sloths that just sit around and do nothing all day, but embrace and, and work with the technology and challenge ourselves to do more things beyond just survival. And this is how we can do it. And so they just kind of like stand back and look at that with, with amazement. And then they ask questions like, you know, how do you go about implementing this? In what ways can you transition? I get the transition question a lot. And I've, I've, 
I remember when I first started in the movement, people would ask the transition question to Peter or anybody else for that matter or me and be like, you know, how do we transition? And early on, I couldn't really answer that question. It's like, I don't know, how do you change the whole world? Uh, And it seems like an awfully daunting task. But over time, I've kind of realized, actually, it's not as hard as one might think. I mean, how did we get to the point where we are in the first place? How did this system come about? It it slowly over time developed as the most useful system at the time. And nobody told the hunter-gatherers that we're going to switch over to monetary economics now, just do it. You know, it didn't quite happen that way. It was over time that seashells were started to be used as a proxy when the trading and the bartering became a little bit too cumbersome and things like that. And so the one thing led to another, and we are where we are. Uh, Now, it took a long time for that to happen uh, for obvious reasons that communication capabilities globally, you know, weren't as robust as they are now. In fact, none of the technical capabilities that we have were as robust then as they are now. That's pretty obvious and intuitive. But in today's world, we could we do the flip really quick? Yes. But psychologically, can we do the flip really quick? No. It's going to take a couple of generations for this concept to really get into the DNA, for lack of a better word. And one of the best ways to affect that transitional adjustment is to start implementing systems that help people but still kind of have one foot in the old system and one foot in the new. I kind of said that before. You straddle the fence a little bit, and you show people how it could be. You still got to make money and do all this kind of play the game a little bit according to the rules that are in place. But the mindset of the person running that business or running that company is to know that the service they are providing is a sustainable concept, that what they're doing is trying to get away from that dependency on money for that particular widget or that particular service or whatever it is they're deciding to do, whatever they're passionate about. And that is how you transition from one to the other is you just make the old system obsolete, hearkening back to the Bucky Fuller statement that a lot of people throw quotes up on Facebook about, things like that. You make the the current system obsolete by just bringing about the new one. And so starting sustainable-based companies and eroding people's dependency on money is a transitional element that can be very effective, plus the activism, plus the communication, plus the awareness building, because it's not just one thing. Uh, it's a combination of all of these different modes of operation that are going to help get people to to flip over their way of thinking at the same time using some of the technical systems that make it possible for them to flip their level of thinking. And so um, you got to kind of affect people's wallets in a positive way in order to get them to realize that they don't need the wallets anymore. That's kind of the point. Yeah, I think that uh, we definitely get uh, programmed in a lot of ways to be accustomed to the monetary system uh, there was actually a guy, I remember, his name was uh, Robert Anton Wilson, I think, and he wrote a book called uh, Fe- Prometheus Rising, and in it he refers to money as bio-survival tickets to try to point out the psychological effect that money has, uh, you know, and just like how important it is to people's minds. I remember thinking back now that I watch... Uh, I just like every now and then I'll you know I'll tune into TV when I'm on you know somebody's house or at somebody's house or something and then there'll be a game show on 
and the reaction that people get when they win, you know, is like as if like their child has been rescued from being hit by a car or something like that. You know, um, we, we've just gotten so like money is so intrinsic in, in our thinking about the world that people don't really consider what the world would be like if they didn't need it. Um, I remember actually when I was given my brief presentation during Z-Day here in uh, Detroit, you know, I pointed out that I was basically talking about something that the Garbage Warrior went through. I don't know if you've seen that film yet, but he's a guy basically who makes off-the-grid houses out of uh, trash and recycled materials. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, the first day he built one for himself and it was completely <clears throat> off-the-grid, he kind of realized, he's like, wait, I, I don't have any bills. I don't owe anybody any money, and I don't need a job. I think I'm going to go for a walk. <laughs> you know, he just went for a walk, and you know, because the notion was something that had never occurred to him before was that I'm free. You know, we don't we don't think about the fact that in many ways the need for money is limiting us. You know, and, and also we don't really consider how oppressive that system becomes. You know, I was actually I was watching a video today from another radio host, and uh, he was kind of critiquing a recent exchange, well, not that recent, but an exchange between Stefan Molyneux and Peter Joseph. And at one point, Stefan Molyneux calls the capitalist system a voluntary system. And the guy's like, all right, I'm going to have to call you out on your BS here. You know, <laughs> hmm. it, you, you can't volunteer, you know, to, to be or not be part of the monetary system. You can volunteer to starve, you know, if you don't like it, that you know, but the idea that this is all voluntary and that we could simply choose not to be part of it is is ridiculous, you know. Well, exactly. It, it it molds and controls every aspect of your life from the day that you're born. I mean, look at how much money is involved just in having a baby these days. When you look at doctor bills and hospitals and all that, I mean, the monetary effect is there f- from the freaking fetus forward. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's embedded in everything, which is. You know, that's kind of what makes it so damn difficult to to for people like you said conceptualize getting rid of it. I mean, it mm-hmm. is yeah, kindergartners are taught mathematics, some mathematical systems by use of money, quarters, dollars, nickels, pennies. I mean, how many children's books do you see that have money as a mathematical basis for teaching fractions and things like that? I mean, you're talking talk about embedded programming from an early age. That's exactly what that is. Mhm. And it's just part of the system. It's not like some nefarious. I don't believe in all this they and we and us and them and all that crap. It's just that makes sense when that's the world that you live in. Of course you're going to use money as a way to do mathematical fractions first. It's a good representation of fractions, a quarter being a quarter of a dollar or, you know, one-fourth of 100, yada, yada, whatever, you know. So that makes sense. Why would you not do that? <laughs> and mm-hmm. and why not use the medium that people are going to have to get used to anyway when they get older and they actually start having to use those damn coins and pieces of paper to buy the stuff that they need to live? No, that's for sure. And it's, I think that it's something that people have never considered because we're kind of uh, conditioned from the very start. You know, when you get, when you're young, basically you're told, okay, well, you're going to finish going to school and then you're going to go to college and then you're going to get a job. And, you know, it's, it's just rooted very heavily in what we are told is an aspect of life. 
And then once we, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, discussing this topic can be so difficult at times is that you're dealing with people who are so conditioned to that. And then in some cases, they're afraid of it, you know, like alternatives because they're change. You know, they, they get, they, they like the current system because they understand the rules of that system. You know, I, I keep referring back to that scene in the Matrix where, uh, Morpheus is pointing out that there are people that are plugged into the system who do not want to be unplugged and they will fight to protect that system. Mm-hmm. Um, mind you, most of those people are usually the ones that are doing just fine. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know yeah, you don't see the homeless guy starving to death on the street going, damn, I love this system. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. No, I agree that it's, it's, they, they think that it's working just fine. And that's actually something that was revealed quite a bit during my time covering Occupy Detroit was that a lot of the people that I was talking to were people who used to be like that. They used to think the system was just fine. They did everything that the system supposedly claims you do to fix things, which would include they re-educated themselves, started their own business, whatever, and it still didn't work. There is a bottom to the system that you can reach that no matter how hard you work, you're not going to come out of it. You know, it's like It's like quicksand in that aspect. And I think that a lot of people are just kind of in denial about that. They, they'd rather assume that everything will always be fine, and they don't find out until they're they're stuck at the bottom. You know, it's and at that point it's like ice skating uphill. Exactly. And so one of, one of the I think one of the easiest ways to bypass all of that is I don't really talk about the negative aspects of the monetary system anymore. I used to. Um, but I don't really talk about it in, in that particular way. There, I guess there's two ways to pose the argument, right? You can do the doom and gloom, money sucks, look at all the problems in the world. That will reach some people. I don't think it will reach as many as maybe a more positive aspect of, wow, look at all the amazing capabilities we have to solve all these problems, and now we can set up institutions, companies, and stuff like that to go about doing it, knowing that by doing that, you're going to erode the monetary system anyway. It's going to become irrelevant naturally. You don't have to tell anybody that money is an irrelevant substance in the 21st century. You just prove that it's an irrelevant substance in the 21st century, and people will gravitate towards it. And when you start being, what do they say, uh, honey versus vinegar? You know, I'd rather use a little more honey and a little less vinegar which is why my, my presentations and my lectures and things like that, I try to be a little more positive about what we're talking about. I try to be a little more energetic about what we're talking about. At the end, I still question the system. I ask, can today's economic system handle this level of abundance after I've gone through all of the technical capabilities that we have? And obviously, we know that the answer is no, that the current system was never designed to handle that level of abundance because some of its most intrinsic characteristics are anti-sustainability. By default, that's how the system is built. Hence, you know, the cyclical consumption, human labor for income, needing those little pieces of paper just to buy the basic necessities of life to exist as a human being. I mean, hell, I'd almost be okay, almost be okay with a world where money, the only thing money was used for was for recreation. And at least the basic necessities of life were universally covered for all the people on the planet. I might be happy with just that being the the end run of the game. I know once we get to that point, we can easily go to the next one where we don't really need cash for anything. But you kind of get my point. Yes, no, I agree. Um, 
Now, in your experiences with uh, discussing these topics now, kind of on like on a worldwide scale, did you have any problems with like the language barrier, or people pretty good with English where you went? In Scandinavia, English is basically a second language to them anyway. In fact, you go to Europe in general, and English is a, a, a second language or whatever. Um, it's it's typically just this country. It's America where English is the dominant language, and we don't even care about learning any other languages, aside from the two years we're required to do in high school. Uh, and, and so uh, their cultures are a little more... It's funny, America tries to talk about being the melting pot, the cultural center of all these different nations around the world live here and all these cultures. Multiculturalism, multiculturalism. You want to learn multiple languages? Fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, wait a minute, what? Um, but no, the, the language barrier wasn't um, wasn't difficult at all. I did make sure that I spoke more slowly and enunciated better so that, you know, everything I said was as clear as possible. Uh, I didn't go 500 miles an hour in a, in a you know, off-topic rant or anything like that. And I've gotten a lot better at doing that during my presentations anyway, which is why they typically last about 50 minutes, 45 to 50 minutes. Uh, if I blitz through it, I might be able to do it in 30, but I try not to go that fast. And so that would be the only thing, but that's a conscious effort on my part to respect the fact that my audience, their native language is not English, and I'm trying to help them uh, as well. Excellent, excellent. Now, uh, what are you looking at here? Oh, well, actually, no, let me ask you first of all about Vancouver, uh, your Z-Day presentation. That was uh, an awesome experience. Um, I was able to meet, uh, you know, I was able to meet Peter, you know, not that I am like, oh, with Peter, but it was nice to just have a conversation face-to-face. -face. Uh, and also Federico Pistono and and uh, James from from the UK with education and just all the, all the crew um, that was there at Z-Day Vancouver. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. Um, we had a, what I thought was a very successful and positive and amazing event for that particular weekend. The, the Vancouver chapter did an awesome job uh, putting on the event. Uh, my lecture seemed to be well-received. Uh, it's also recorded and put online. It's on the YouTube TZM official channel as well. And so, uh, so far, so good. I mean, it was really nice. It was good to meet some of these people that you've been talking to for a couple of years now. I mean, Federico and I have been online friends for over two years now. And so, but it was nice to actually, you know, meet face to face and have talks and and whatnot. So it was a, it was a really it was a, it was a fun time. It was informative. We were able to get a lot of information out. Uh, I had a lot of people come up and say, you know, you know, we appreciate the way you deliver the information because um, I like to crack jokes. I like to have fun. I mean, if you can't have a laugh while saving the planet, then what the hell are you doing? I mean, you've got to be able to smile a bit and try to realize that what we're doing is a good thing and smile about it. I mean, yeah, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to slam at you, a lot of people that are going to – no matter what you say – it's not good enough if you can't appease their specificity specificity oh you know what i'm talking about <laughs> if you can't specifically appease them and say exactly what they want to hear then you're just no good to them uh well i mean you can't let you can't let yourself get bogged down by all of that you're going to find those people but you know what for every one of them that i find i find 10 to 15 others who get it 
and and it can do some of the research on their own and can look things up. I mean, that's the brilliance of Google and the Internet, right? If you want to look up robotics, look up robotics. If you want to look up aquaponics, type in aquaponics. If you want to look up anything, all you got to do is search for it on the web and you will find it. And you can find multiple sources of it so you can kind of weed out the BS from the real stuff, things like that. So that's the beauty of the world that we live in today, and uh, and a lot of the people at that at that uh, at that presentation at that event get that, and uh, I think it's a beautiful thing. Excellent, excellent. Now, so what's on the horizon? Do you have any other lectures lined up? As of right now, I don't. Um, I do have a, a an email, a letter into Co at Switzerland, which is kind of you know as you remember way back in the day, my Switzerland lecture is one of the things that kind of started this whole ball rolling with me doing public speaking. Um, well, the original ball rolling was me lecturing to the Houston humanists and getting that recorded and put online, and then I ended up doing Switzerland, and from Switzerland it just kind of went from there, snowballed. Uh, I'm looking at going, trying to go back to Switzerland uh, to discuss uh, these things again. Uh, I've gotten a lot better. My my lecture is, uh, I think, a lot better now than it even was close to being two years ago when I was there. And so I've got feelers in to see about maybe returning to Co. Uh, leading a workshop, and, and this one's kind of different than the last time. This one is actually about global economics, um, and so that's right up my alley. <laughs> and uh, as far as you know, bringing the technical solutions to the economic front and then asking people, all right, so how does that all work? And start questioning the system. Uh, the people there have amazing hearts, and they have amazing minds, and they really want to do things to help people. Unfortunately, a lot of them are still, as we know, locked into this little bubble that we have on this planet that people think it's the only operational system possible. And so I'm hoping I can get in there and rock the boat a little bit and get people thinking in a different way. But otherwise, no, I don't have anything else lined up other than continuing to press forward with uh, CFS and do the research on that. And, uh, you know, go through the trial and error process because that's what research is anyway. I mean, Einstein failed on the light bulb 100 times or so before he got the right one. So, you know, not that I plan on failing 100 times, but that's still the scientific process. And so we're going through that uh, going through that right now. And uh, as I design and redesign systems and learn new things about how this how this will work on a, on a robotic plus harvesting and growing plants and how to grow it and everything else – so that it, it can be automated, then uh, we continue to move forward. Excellent, excellent. Well, um, I guess uh, basically taking all of that into account, you know, you've done a lot working in the movement. Um, what do you think as far as the current state of things when it comes to our movement? Uh, it, what, you know, if we were to discuss kind of where we're at as compared to where we were before, uh, you know, just where where do you see first of all like you know what would you like to see come you know come out next for the movement you know if we were to move in another direction what developments would you like to see ooh that's not a heavy loaded question um <laughs> let me think it, well i know the movement runs in cycles we you know peaks and valleys uh it, really everything fires up when peter releases another zeitgeist film and all the Core members come out and say, yeah, yay, we bring out the pom-poms and things get really excited for a little while and then they kind of dive back off. And, you know, it's kind of hard to see what people are doing 
outside of that uh, pom-pom waving parade uh, when when bigger events happen. But from the conversations that I've had, and you know, me having 3,700 plus connections on Facebook. Um, is gives me a lot of people telling me a lot of stuff all the time. I get several emails a day. Hey, Doug, check out this what I'm doing, or do you have opinions on that, or whatever? And there are hundreds, uh, thousands of people, and pro- probably even more, because not everybody knows Doug, which is fine. I don't care about that. But there is a lot of stuff going on that is RBE minded. People are doing things in the real world. In fact, that was one of my statements at uh, Z Day was get off the computer. You're not going to help <laughs> anybody in real life if the only thing you do is stay in cyberspace. Uh, you might – well, let me change that. That's not necessarily true. Cyberspace is, is what has gotten a lot of us involved in the first place, and I respect that. But that's a small pool to pick from. If you really want to get people in a real way, you need to help them in a real way. And whether that is the Zeithouses that are coming together, uh, where a lot of Zeitgeist members rent one place, and then they start doing hydroponic testing and aquaponic testing or start building up presentations that they can go around their local city and, and whatnot. These are people that can work together that kind of share the financial load so that it's not such a burden on, on each other. Um, I went and go as far as saying anybody needs to go into communes and isolate themselves from the planet because that's not going to help anything. But renting a house together with you know seven or eight of your best mates and starting to work on some of these problems on a local level, like doing gardens in the city, uh, going out and helping people, uh, trying to do clean energy research so that you can help people get off the grid and start petitioning the local city councils and the local governments. Because I think we're going we're gonna to do a lot more good by going local than trying to go national. I mean, I've had people tell me, Doug, you should run for president. Well, one, no. I don't even want to come close to going near that wasp nest. Uh, I have better things to do with my time. And even if I could, I don't think anything would get done. The national level of almost every country is just broken politically. It's Mm -hmm. just broken. It's not designed to get anything major done. But locally, in your town with your mayor or your city council, and it's a lot easier to get elected to city council than it is to become a senator or a congressperson, aha, well, then that is where you can do some serious change. You want to talk about grassroots? Well, start at the roots, damn it, and stop trying to get on the top of the grass. (laughs) So um, those are things that people can do, and I think that's starting to happen. People are seeing that that's the reality, that that that's the avenue that we need to go down. And so I think what the movement should do is what the movement is currently doing. Uh, We reach out and try to talk to people and get a lot of information out there. Um, Do it in an organized, professional way. Make sure all the websites are rock solid with data and references Mm -hmm. so that people can go look up additional information. um, Or give them the avenues to where they can go research some of the stuff on their own. Uh, some of these topics have seven, eight, nine bullet points. If you tried to fit it all on one page, it would make people go cross-eyed. But you could give them links so that they can go look up stuff in bits and pieces when they, as, so they can digest it a little bit easier. 
uh, things like that are happening. And then, of course, sustainability companies or nonprofit groups or things like that, like what I'm doing with CFS or what anybody else can do with within their talent levels, whatever they're good at, whatever they're passionate about, that is what they should do and cultivate towards the RBE mindset with the RBE mindset in place. And that is how the movement will effectively – and like I said, you don't even have to do it under the umbrella of the movement. The movement is too amorphous for that anyway. It's not like we have a president and a board of directors and here's the hierarchy and yada, yada. The movement is really just an idea. It's a concept. It's a philosophy. It really is a philosophy. But you have to take that philosophy from words and start putting it into action as best you can. That's how you positively and actually affect change. And that's kind of – that's not necessarily what the movement has to be about. The movement is like the springboard, right? Mm-hmm. You, you jump off the diving board using the movement, but when you land in the pool, you still have to swim. So that's what you've got to do. I remember actually when uh, Peter was talking about why we removed the forums from uh, zeitgeistmovement.com, and one of the things that he talked about was that – the forums allowed us to create for ourselves within our own minds an illusion of participation and that people would tend to spend hours and hours and hours arguing on those forums and they were not part of their local chapter. You know, they weren't involved in any projects outside of that. And, you know, don't get me wrong, the forums were a useful tool, but you know, I've seen very similar things to what he's talking about. For example, it was actually the Occupy movement that caused me to realize this. And that is that, you know, there were people who participated on the Internet, on the Facebook groups, but did not come out to the camp. Um, and so they were like, quote unquote, occupying. But part of like being an occupier was putting yourself at risk and being part of, you know, uh, protests and things like that. And so it would also create all these rifts. In fact, I've found that this is kind of a global problem, that there are rifts in the Occupy movement between um, the people who camp and the people who don't. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, And it's largely because of the fact that many of the people who don't, not all of them, but many of the people who don't, don't do anything. <laughs> you know, they they have a lot to say about what the people at the camp should be doing, but they're never out there and they're not, you know, you know, sitting out in the freezing cold or whatever else, you know. And so, you know, it, I understand completely what you mean about it about that, and it's one of the reasons why uh I started using my YouTube channel. Uh I got a video camera and started going out, you know, interviewing people that were involved in the different Occupy movements, and I plan to continue to do that, actually. Um, I just kind of ran into a financial black hole that was the last few months that slowly I'm coming out of. You know, maybe you as a engineer involved with space can, you know, give me some algorithms or something to use to help slingshot myself <laughs> out of this uh, anomaly that is known as the financial system. But anyway... um, you know, but I plan to make a trip to uh, one of the local Canadian occupies and uh, some of the more local Michigan occupies, including uh, Ann Arbor, which is actually very close to me. I'm probably going to make more trips to Flint and more into Lansing, and I'm probably going to go to Toledo, Ohio, as well. You know, just to kind of you know, one of the reasons why is is not even just because of um, 
the the notion that you're going to uh, accomplish much in the in the in the fashion of like you're not necessarily going to get any real changes done by what you're doing although you absolutely can like right now I'm very proud of Occupy Detroit they're doing a lot of things for example like they're they're occupying people's homes that are about to be foreclosed and they're putting pressure on the local banks especially when the local banks are doing something really dishonest to be able to take these people's homes mm-hmm. you know they get it in the media and then all of a sudden these banks change their mind and and they they work with these people and in a lot of cases we have we have all kinds of stories about that like there'd be somebody who like a couple that like even had the money to buy out like no we have the money we can just we can just pay you and they would refuse to take the payment and because they wanted to foreclose because they'd get more money that way mm-hmm. you know and we put the we put the you know the basically the spotlight on these kinds of criminal activities i mean although they're completely legal i call them criminal um and eventually those banks will buckle you know that's a tangible thing that you can accomplish but i guess what i'm getting at is just the quality of exchanges you can have you know with some of these people and then the fact that you know that the conversation that you had there will impact some other conversation that those people have later. You know, that's that's actually one of the been one of the big things that I've been trying to do when I got a you know, kinda got out of the house and, and went to the Occupy movement. I was happy actually also that there was finally something going on in Michigan that was worth being part of. Um the local Michigan Zeitgeist chapter is amazing, don't get me wrong, and I and I try to get involved in that as much as possible. Um in fact that's another thing um that I often told people because there would be people back in the days of the forums that would would gauge how the movement was doing based upon their forum participation and what was going on there and then you'd go to an actual meeting and virtually none of the crap that you saw in the forums would ever go on in, a, in an in-person meeting. Well, that's because cyber bravado was amazing when you're behind the safety of a keyboard. But if you get face-to-face <laughs> with somebody, you become a hell of a lot more cordial. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, you know, but basically, you know, that's pretty much a, a true across-the-board thing. And that's one of the reasons I'm making that troll film I'm working on still um I, I just I keep trying to refine how I want to pr- approach it but is just to try to get across to people that you know the people uh, do not realize how much the internet can be yes it can be an absolute tool that's beneficial but it can also be a tool that can just cause so many problems you know especially when people don't do due diligence to try to be sure that what they're reading is not full of crap you know um and that's and that's true also obviously of things that we agree with and disagree with it was ironically you know that is one of the things that's made me a skeptic about a lot of things is just the way that for example all the new world order stuff that people talk about you know i i still to this day you know by all means believe that the bilderberg group and groups like that you know i mean it's just it's too hard not to acknowledge the possibility that a group of rich people will get together and ensure how they stay rich, you know. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a universal concept. It, it's you know, it, it's something that has been has been going on for millennia. You know, the original big conspiracy that comes to mind, I would say, you know, uh, was basically the the conspiracy that was referred to as nobility. You know, we're all going to kind of get together and establish this system. That we are in charge and you're not, and you should just kind of go along with uh, you know whatever we're doing, because you know we're we are the uh, you know the elite aristocrats, and let's all get together and kind of convince everyone that this is just how it should be, 
And to those who do not agree with us, well, that's what armies and prisons are for. Exactly. Yeah, and then the genetic superiority and bloodlines and all that crap. Right. And that's um it, so that's why I say to people, you know, it, it is true that we should not focus quite so much to the point where we get out of hand with it. Like you mentioned earlier the topic of the overpopulation problem that you're apparently not allowed to ever talk about without being accused of being some New World Order shill. Uh, Jacques had to put up with this crap at Occupy Miami. We discussed that actually in a, a previous interview that I had with them not long ago. But um, Jacques went to Occupy Miami, and there was apparently some people at Occupy Miami who would believed that we, you know, advocated like mass world depopulation or something, which. Jacques gets associated with solely because of the fact that he even discusses the fact that we should probably consider the carrying capacity of the Earth. You know, um, and I remember distinctly one of the people he interacted with that really stuck out in my mind was the woman who was like, you know, you're, you're suggesting depopulation, you know, that there's not enough stuff for everybody on the planet. So which one of my five children has to die to implement your plan? And <laughs> He's like, I didn't say your children have to die at all. You know, he's like, I think we can extend the carrying capacity of the Earth through technology, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay attention, you know. And I actually come to think of it really, you know, one of the things I said during that interview was, you know, if I were that mother, I wouldn't be looking for anyone else to blame about why your children might die because it's not going to be us showing up at your house with a gun you're, you know, when the when the world turns into a state of collapse and there's not enough food, your kids are going to die anyway. You know, they always assume that we're going to, you know, like pull the lever and then make that happen. We're trying to discuss the fact that eventually we're going to run out of stuff if we're not careful. You know, that's what's going to kill people. Yeah, it's, there's a realistic limit. There's only one Earth, and it's finite. And if people think they can just consume until the end of the universe, then they're just plain stupid. Because life doesn't work that way. You cannot possibly do that. It's not their fault so much that they're ignorant about that, although I do believe some of those people who spew the, you know, you want to depopulate the world stuff have their own agenda, some kind of reason mm -hmm. that I can't even fathom or understand, nor do I even care about uh, so much. Uh, they just, I don't know what's going on in their heads. But <clears throat> my address to that con to that topic is quite simple. You know, <clears throat> just look at the numbers. Wealthier nations who have adequate health care and quality standards of living have a pretty nominal birth rate, uh, fertility rate, about one to one, one to two. You know, basic streamlined balance. <clears throat> and impoverished parts of the world where life generally stinks, it's about seven to one. So, I mean, when your environmental conditions are terrible, you make more babies either because people are un uneducated on birth control methods or sexual responsibility or you know maybe because the women are considered third class citizens and you know heaven forbid we actually give the women some rights and educate them and let them be con the controllers of their own bodies and let's stop all the rapes and everything else that creates so many unwanted pregnancies in those parts of the world i mean people really don't dig into the numbers enough to know what they're talking about. And so they throw these blanket statements out uh, thinking, I don't know, that they're intelligent or that they have an argument. And then when you actually look at the argument and look at the numbers, they're so off base it's not even funny. So the answer ends up being really simple. If everybody had a positive quality of life, 
the natural birth rate would balance. And so you would never have a population issue or a concern to that level. And mix that with getting women's rights where they should be around the world so that they are in control of their own bodies and that they have a say in what goes on and things like that, which a lot of people seem to take for granted, but they forget that there are many parts of the world where that just doesn't exist. You know, And if you look at the population issues, that's where a lot of those are. So put two and two together, fix that, and voila. Well, it's it, I mean, you can make it even simpler. Like I keep, you know, talking about how the best way to describe this is to consider uh, you know, a starship. You know, maybe the earth is too big for people to really get, you know. So let's let's talk about that. You know, there's a reason for example why if there was going to be an extended stay, say somewhere like Mars, the likelihood is is they would expect that you know the female astronauts would not have children. Um, now, if it was part of some kind of experiment specifically, then I could see them doing that. But the reason why is because, all right, we know we only have enough food and oxygen and provisions for five people. Therefore, it would be irresponsible of us to try to bring a child into this situation. Right. And, and that's where the responsibility lies. You know... Um, we, as an altruistic movement, obviously want to seek to be able to feed as many children as possible. Um, the goal is only to be able to educate people to understand, okay, now that we've reached capacity, we should probably not have any more children because there won't be enough food for everybody and they will die slowly. You know, that's just that's just the way it is. You know, it's... <laughs> Um, and I think it, that you get the same problem when you're trying to discuss things with free marketeers is that they feel that they should have the right to trade and they feel that they should have the right to, you know, to move resources regardless of the implications, the ecological implications, for example, of what will happen when they do that. And they think that that system in of itself is, is perfect and that everything will be fine. But they have a tendency to be very short sighted in the fact that they're not really considering that. There's only so many resources here. You know, there's only so many, period. And as a result, if we just allow them to be traded in the open market willy-nilly with no uh, in, no consideration whatsoever for the implications on the planet, that people will die. You know, and, and they get very defensive over that. And it's, I remember actually uh, discussing this in a previous show. It's like they feel like it, they have a right to take six apples even if there's only five left on the planet. You know, yeah. and if and if you try to tell them that they can't have six apples when there's only five left on the planet, then you're an evil socialist fascist guy who's intent on destroying their property rights. And it's like, no, dude, um, you can't have six because there's only five, and we probably shouldn't take them at all. We should replant them and populate the species. Oh, but I have the money to buy six. But it doesn't matter. There isn't six. <laughs> you know. Yeah, but like you said a little bit earlier, when you're talking about the entire planet, people just can't fathom that there's a limit. Right. Because they say, oh, big old planet, you know, we can just do whatever, and that's that's going to be the, the turnabout of our extinction if we continue to think that way. Because, I mean, the planet will continue on, as George Carlin would say. <laughs> the right. planet will continue on. It'll be just fine. It's the people that are screwed. You know, the planet might change into something completely different, you know, Earth without people. <laughs> and figure out, figure plus out plastic. Yeah, plus plastic, exactly. Uh, so, 
<laughs> plastic. That's asshole. what. Yeah, that's why. That's why Earth created us was plastic. It wanted yeah, plastic. It didn't have any plastic, right? But no, I, I agree with you. That and that's I think it's it's an aspect of this that people don't consider. And the same thing, you know, like you know, it they don't consider it on, on the planetary level. And we've seen examples of smaller societies, primitive societies, that have destroyed themselves due just due to this lack of foresight. Like uh, there is actually a lot of speculation, more specifically, on the the Easter Island natives, for example, who kind of ate themselves to death. You know, they they expended all of the resources required for survival on their island, and then they paid for it with their lives. You know, it's it's one of those things that happens very slowly. So I think people just kind of take it for granted that the you know the stuff needed to survive will always be there because they've never seen a time when it couldn't be, you know. And that's it's amazing actually how protective these people will get of their lifestyles. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's because that's what's been reinforced over and over again. And so I mean, it makes sense, that, you know, that it's sad uh, but expected. And, you know, in time, as people see what we're capable of doing positively, uh, no, we don't have to depopulate or take anybody out. In fact, quite the opposite, There, the, there's a means to where we can actually have a lot more people on this planet. We'll just remove some of the congestion by not basically forcing the entire world to live in these large megapolis cities where diseases can run rampant and life can be way too tight and congested. Why don't we just spread it out a little bit? We have a very large planet you know, people don't necessarily have to live in these city areas because we all know well, there's a report, was it last year, maybe the year before, showing the population density of cities is on the rise because people just aren't living rural anymore because they can't make a living out there in the middle of nowhere, so they've got to go to the city. And when you get a whole bunch of people crammed into one little area, that can be problems medically, socially, and in a whole bunch of different ways. And so – you know, you start implementing technical systems that make life better for people no matter where they live. Now you will get the opportunity to go live up in the mountains or live a little bit more remotely and still have access to all of the positive things that you need to live an amazing, healthy, productive life. So now you can actually grow the population on the planet and it wouldn't really hurt it because we've made it so that it can handle the abundance, that it has the abundance level to handle that. Not to mention going off into space and doing all the other things that we are currently restricted on doing. We could actually go and do them. So, <clears throat> you know, those arguments are head shakers for me. They make me sad sometimes. But, you know, I try not to really get into arguments with people who come at you that way because you're not going to get anywhere. Yep, that's very true. We're now down to the last three minutes of our show. Uh Go ahead and uh, give some lists to your websites. Well, uh, I've got my Facebook page, of course, which is just Douglas Millett. I'm easy to find, uh, M-A-L-L-E-T-T-E. Uh, I accept people regularly uh, on to connect with because I actually use Facebook for what it was designed for, a social networking platform. Actually, I use it as a professional networking platform just because it's so convenient. Um, also, uh, Cybernated Farm Systems has a page, a Facebook page. It's Cybernated Farm Systems. Just search for that, and it'll pop up. I'm currently mm-hmm. 90 seconds. All right, and then I've got my YouTube channel, which is TZM Social Evolution, and the CFS website will be coming up sometime soon. That's in the process of being constructed, and that's basically it. All right, excellent. To those of you who have tuned in tonight, uh, thanks again for tuning into V Radio. 
Uh, please visit my website, v-radio.org. You can also go to the blog and read my recent uh, review of The Venus Project's new film, Paradise or Oblivion. Um, thanks again for being on tonight, Doug. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me.